Now I'm going to read. The scripture for today is in Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and, say, and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's save the word of the Lord. Oh, yeah, there is quite a few of you here, considering the nice, warm, humid weather. I'm going to do that the whole time to annoy you guys. Well, let me just say for me, welcome to another installment of our series, Humans of the Bible. And uh, so far, if you've been a part of this series or kind of maybe been checking it out online or maybe just looked back at everything we've been doing, uh, you'll notice that so far, most, or for the most part, most of the uh, humans we've looked at could probably be kind of uh, categorized, if you will, as kind of positive examples. Uh, there are definitely people that we, we can learn from in a positive way. That doesn't mean that they were without their flaws. Many of them made some terrible mistakes. Uh, but even within that, we can kind of use their example and learn from them and grow from them. They kind of lean in that uh, direction. With all of them, we kind of see this clear, uh, they, they belong to the Lord, and they continue to belong to the Lord. And many of them we learned from the mistakes that they made and how they learned and grew from them, um, and often repenting of sins that they maybe had committed. And with a few, we even saw representations of Jesus in Scripture, especially in the Bible narrative overall, a lot of these, especially in the Old Testament, a lot of the characters, uh, we think they're about us, but really they're meant to point us to Jesus as representations of him. Now, our human of the Bible for today could not be more in the opposite direction. Simply saying his name, Judas, kind of invokes this heaviness, this feeling of, of wickedness, of you can sense the weight of, of, of his actions just in hearing his name alone. And, and Judas' infamy is, is well known worldwide, even to today, over 2,000 years after what he did, we still feel the weight and infamy in his name alone. Whether you have an understanding of Christianity or Jesus or have never heard of any of it, you've probably, to some extent, heard about Judas. Most will have heard what he did. The name is not only filled with this negative connotation in itself, but is even synonymous, has the same meaning as betrayal. And to say that someone is being a Judas, quit being a Judas, is a grievous insult to their character, to say that they are maybe cunning, manipulative, untrustworthy, and that they have or they likely will at some point betray you if someone is considered a Judas. Of course, it wasn't always the case, right? The name itself doesn't mean that. Uh, it was actually quite a popular name at the time of Judas. Um, even Jesus' brother uh, as we understand it, was named, or one of Jesus' birth brothers was named Judas. It was a popular name. It seems to have really dropped in popularity after Judas Iscariot. Even Barnabas, who also was known as Judas, changed his name. He was like, call me Barnabas. I don't want to have my name associated with that. All because of this one man's action, and really just coming down to this one moment of betrayal. Judas' infamous legacy will go down in history, and I believe all eternity, as one of the most, if not the most, wicked act ever conducted by any human being who has ever lived or will live. He betrayed Jesus Christ to be executed. And even from a worldly perspective, even if you take a step back from the Bible and what we believe 
what, who Jesus really is, whether you believe he's Lord or not, certainly he didn't deserve to be betrayed the way he was, to be handed over to be crucified after being beaten within an inch of his life. He certainly didn't deserve that at any level. And not just betrayed, but betrayed by one who was close to him, one who ate with him, one who walked with him for three years in ministry, a close friend, and betrayed with nothing less or nothing worse than a kiss of all things. If you don't know the story, as he finally makes, takes his action, he sees his opportunity, he goes and brings the authorities to the Garden of Gethsemane and identifies Jesus with a kiss. And let's talk about betrayal. If you've never been betrayed, you are blessed. If you have, you know what it feels like. Even with small betrayals, it can be heavy. It can feel, it, can, it hurts you deep down. I trusted you, and you've betrayed me. You've, you've kind of tarnished my trust that I had in you. But if you've ever been betrayed at a, at a, at a deep level, it's... it's there's nothing quite as painful. Because betrayal requires a level of trust, right? You can't just, someone can't betray you if you don't know them, if you've never given anything over to them, if you've never surrendered or opened yourself up to them, they can't really betray you. But people who betray you are people who you've trusted, who you've opened, who you've been vulnerable before. You've given them the authority, the position to be able to betray you. And the closer the friendship, the greater the relationship, the, the greater the betrayal will be. And I don't believe that there's any argument as to whether what Judas did was, was a wicked act, was a wrong act, a, a hurtful act. Certainly, we can all see that pretty clearly. But I think before we put Judas kind of over here in his own category, in his own kind of field, away from us and think we have nothing to do with this betrayer of the Son of God. That's him over there. I have nothing to do with that. I have nothing in common with this guy. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful. We may be closer than we think, and some may be much closer than you think. So we want to take his example as this negative example. And learn some lessons and most importantly, heed some warnings that we can take from the life that he lived and the decisions he made. What led him to betray Jesus, his friend, the one he called Lord, the one he followed and obeyed, the one he chose to follow? What led him to betray him? Well, let's go back to the beginning. When we looked at the text, it says this was the moment when it really kind of, it turned to the point where he couldn't be undone. He went to the high priests and said that he was, that he wanted to hand him over. But it starts with that, then one of the twelve, then one of the twelve, and that's important. Because see, Jesus had thousands of followers, right? I mean, there were times where he would preach and there'd be 5,000 and he's feeding them. That's just the one that I thought of first. But there were thousands of people, massive crowds of people would come to listen to him and to hear him preach and teach. He had hundreds of people who called themselves disciples of Jesus, who were devoted to him and following him. But 12 were specifically asked by Jesus to follow him. And they chose to leave their lives behind and to follow after Jesus everywhere he went. Everywhere he went. Jesus' ministry was not just like just on Sundays. Every day they were with him. Every day they walked with him. They ate with him. They, they saw all of the things that he did. The 12 were always with him. And Judas was not simply, this is like to bring this into modern terms, he wasn't just simply you know, a member of the church or a part of the church. He wasn't just you know, playing in the band or a leader. He was, it was like, I mean, he was destined to be an apostle, which is the highest uh, position you can be. But it would be like someone in, in eldership kind of having going to the point where they betray the leader of the church would be kind of just to, to bring it into our realm today. This was somebody who was in the inner circle of what was going on in Jesus' ministry. And he was very, very good at playing that part. Very good at looking the part of the disciple. 
Judas did not appear out of the ordinary. He was not, he didn't look anything different than the other disciples. He was just like them. And we might think, again, to push him off to the side, but we may have a lot more in common with him than we think. Hopefully not many of you, but some of you may. When the disciples were confronted by Jesus at the Last Supper, and Jesus says that one of them would betray him, they didn't all immediately go, (laughs) Judas, obviously, like we might feel today with all of the connotation that the name Judas has. It wasn't obvious to them. They had no idea that it would be Judas. They were all like, you, you, who could it be? They all also just kind of shows you their kind of level of security and in, in their following Christ. They all thought, yeah, it might be me. It might be any of us. They all wondered amongst themselves who it might be. He was really good at looking like the other disciples, saying the right thing, acting the right way. He did, did it so well that the other 11, again, the people who were always there, always in ministry together, doing everything together, had no clue about what was really going on in his heart. They couldn't see what was really going on deep inside of him. Only Jesus knew. Only Jesus knew. And Jesus knew. Jesus says in, in, in John uh, 6, 70, I think, then, uh, that when he's kind of talking about the blessing that he's going to be, that the disciples are going to receive, he says, but not all of you, not all of you will receive this because one of you is a devil. And he was referring to Judas, of course. He knew. Now, this may feel a little bit unfair. We may think, well, why, why did Jesus even choose him? What's really going on here? Why, I mean... And Jesus explains this, and I think it's important to go through this to bring us kind of a better understanding of the actions of Judas and how they fit in with God's bigger plan because obviously Jesus needed to die on the cross. How does it all fit together? Well, Jesus explains it here in John 13, 18 through 22, that he's not surprised even if the other disciples hadn't a clue what was really going on. He says, I am not referring to all of you. So again, you can read through all of it around that, but he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. He knows which ones that he has chosen, which ones truly belong to him, who follow him not just in lip service, but with their whole heart have chosen to follow Jesus and see him as Lord. He knows who they are. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. So he's saying it's going, this has all been predestined in a way. I, God has, this was already kind of decided. We see this already in the Old Testament scripture that this day would come and that it would happen this way. Verse 19, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. He's trying to encourage them, to strengthen them. It may look like things are falling apart, but I know what's going on. I haven't lost control. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And then he's, he's really just hammering it down. This isn't, I'm not just talking theoretically, guys. One of you, one of you, one of the 12 is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. They had no clue. They had no idea. But Jesus is giving them a forewarning, saying, hey, I know what's about to happen. Things are about to get crazy because this is the night it happens. This is the night when everything is about to begin to unfold. They're about to sit down for the last supper. And he wants to encourage them that this isn't out of my control. This isn't out of my hands. I know I will be betrayed by one of you, but this has been long foreseen. This is all part of God's bigger plan. I'm not surprised by this. It's all part of the bigger plan of salvation for everyone. But I want to be very clear because you say, whoa, 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 that sounds a bit unfair. It's like, did Judas have a choice? 
this in no way undermines that Judas chose to reject Jesus out of his own free will. Judas chose to reject Jesus. His wickedness came from his heart. That wicked decision to do that came from his own heart. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. It's out of the heart that these things come. And that should really help us try to get us to get a better grasp on sin in our life. Because until our hearts are changed, when we come to Christ in true, genuine repentance before Him, all of us, all of us are capable of incredible evil. That's why Jesus compares hatred to murder. Because if you're able to hate somebody, you're capable to murder. This is not on my notes, dangerous, but I was watching a study about and they were studying various murderers. And what really was shocking to the, the interviewer was how normal they felt and how normal they seemed. Some of them had committed horrible, heinous crimes, and yet you couldn't tell. They didn't seem like monsters. And the truth is we all have that. It's, all, it's within us. We have sin in, built into our hearts. We need that redemption that comes through knowing Christ. So it was out of his heart that this wickedness came, and he chose to follow that wickedness instead of turning to Christ. And what we're witnessing in Jesus explaining this is Jesus' awareness of God's providence, which we talked about a few weeks back, about God's providence. God is using this wickedness, this wicked decision, this choice to follow his, this, yeah, we'll we'll look at what he's kind of following later, but to, to decide to betray Jesus eventually that came from his heart and how God is using this, what Judas meant for evil, God is using to fulfill his purpose of salvation for all mankind. Jesus is trying to reassure his disciples. I know what's going on, guys. Don't worry. Don't fret. And they needed that reassurance because literally hours later, they're all going to be running and hiding. Peter's going to be denying he even knows Jesus. They're all going to be in fear when Jesus is taken in to is uh, taken into to be crucified, they need this assurance. So he's trying to assure them that this wicked act that's about to take place was never out of God's view. He knew it was coming long, long ago, and he's going to use it to bring about salvation. And this is exactly what we saw with Joseph, right? Joseph saw his brother's actions. They did this horrible thing. They sold him into slavery. What a wicked act to do to sell your own flesh and blood into slavery. And yet, eventually, Joseph, in hindsight, looks back and says, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. What does that mean? It means the evil that you did, it came from your heart. You chose to do this wicked act. But God knew it was going to happen, and he meant it for good. He meant it for good. And that's God's providence. God didn't directly intervene and change things. He used even the wickedness to do something good. And that's what we see, even through Judas' choice, out of the wickedness of his heart, God turned that to bring about salvation through Jesus' death on the cross. Nobody forced Judas to become a disciple. Jesus called him, invited him to come and follow him. And there were some that didn't, right? The young young rich man, he says, go sell all your things and, and follow me. And he went away sad. He wanted the world. He chose the world over Jesus. But Judas chose to follow Jesus. To follow him, to obey him. But what we see in his actions and in his eventual betrayal is that he made that decision to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Maybe selfish intentions, Maybe he had selfish ambitions. There's a lot of people that followed Jesus, a lot of people that liked to hear what he had to say. Maybe he saw an opportunity. Maybe he saw a way to to gain power, to gain authority, to gain money. He didn't follow him for the right reasons. He didn't see Jesus as his Lord. He saw him as a means for something else. We don't know exactly what it was, but he certainly had a particular love of money 
which we know a love of money is, is a root of evil. It's a root of all evils, what the Bible says. A love of money, of course. And we can see that with Judas' response to Mary's act of great worship, right? Mary pour, is pour, pours out perfume to anoint Jesus. This beautiful act, this wonderful act. It was an expensive bottle. It was a, a year's wages, and she poured it all out to say, I, I want to give you everything I have. This is, you are more important than anything I have, any possession I have in this world, this great act. And Judas' response in John 12, 4 through 6, says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas saw this act of worship, which somebody who truly understands worship, truly understands who Jesus is, would be moved by. He saw it as a, as a, a crime, that this was a waste. It's a waste, a waste of your time, a waste of your energy, to serve God, a waste of your energy to pour yourself out like that. But ultimately, his intention was, of course, I would have liked to see that money end up in the bag that I'm carrying around so that I can get my hands into it. He had a love of money. Now, money in itself, of course, is not evil. It's just a thing, actually. It's not evil in itself. It can be a useful tool in our lives, that's for sure. <laughs> but to love money, to love money, what does that really mean? To love money is to love what money provides, to love the world and everything it offers. And when we have that at the root of our most intimate desire, when that's what we care about the most, we cannot love Jesus the way we should. We cannot love Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot love money and Christ. You'll have to choose. Money buys us, can buy us security, possessions, Feelings of power, of authority, can give us a lot of things. And if that's what we really crave, we cannot love Jesus. And it will always come first. It will always come before Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly, again, we don't know exactly, getting back to what we're trying to figure out here, we don't know exactly what Judas had in mind and what motivated him to get to that point of betraying Jesus. So he's got his hand in the money bag, but how did he get to the point of betraying Jesus? And I don't believe that it was simply money, right? He got paid. He got 30 pieces of silver. I don't think it was just about the money alone. I think the sin that led him to the point that where Judas was able to go to the Pharisees to sell Jesus out started long, long before that moment. And it was a sin that grew and grew in his heart over time. It never was dealt with, never confessed, never repented of, and it kept growing. And the question of Judas for us today is one that should put a little bit of fear in our hearts. It should be something that causes us to look inside and be reflective of our own life and of our own hearts, to be carefully watching our own actions and our own intentions, to look at our own soul. How could Judas, how could Judas walk with Jesus for years, witness the things he witnessed, experience the things he experienced, and yet still not believe? except still not see him as who he says he would, see Jesus as who he said he was. In Luke 9, 1 through 2, it even says that Judas was given authority, like the other 12. The 12 came to him, and he gave them authority to, to preach and to teach the truth. He had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had seen Jesus speak into people's lives, reveal sins in their lives. He had seen Jesus heal people, miraculous works. He had seen Jesus and heard all the words that Jesus spoke and all their power and authority. For three years, he walked with Jesus. He himself went out and preached that same truth to the surrounding areas, the surrounding towns. Jesus didn't stand out. He blended in perfectly with the others who confessed to follow Jesus as their true Lord. And this makes my heart stop in my chest. This is something that all, often brings fear into my heart. Because the truth is, unfortunately, statistically, 
it is very likely that some of you listening here in this room, some of you listening on YouTube now or later, some of you listening to me right now, whether may not truly believe, may not truly know Jesus. You may blend in well with other believers, but in your heart, you don't know him as Lord and Savior. In your heart, you don't really know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and it's simply a matter of time. It's simply a matter of time before you will either give in and give yourself over to him and say, yes, Jesus, I do see you as Lord. I, I confess all my sins. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you truly and fully with all of my heart. Or you will reject him completely. And you will sell him out for what the world will give you instead. And it's possible. It is very possible to stand next to Jesus to be shoulder to shoulder with those who are true believers, who truly see Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and yet have no personal relationship with him yourself. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord, you will eventually betray him. You will eventually walk away. If he's not really your Lord, if you're looking for something that he can provide for you, something that he can give you, through this idea of a relationship with him, it's not going to be enough. You will walk away. If you're seeking after something other than Jesus himself, and it might be that, if that's the case, it might be that you don't really know him. And I think often, in a, just a modern... I know this might be a sensitive subject, especially here in Freiburg, it's very common, I feel like. But if you're, if you're running from church to church and you're thinking, oh, I like what they say here, I like what they say here, oh, oh, that's too much. I'm going to go over here now. If you're just looking for the right feeling, the right atmosphere, and looking for all of these experiences or even these experiences of the idea of God, you're not going to find satisfaction. Because what you're really looking for is what Jesus has for you. What you're really looking for is what Jesus offers you. And you're never going to truly find it until you surrender yourself to him. He's the one who can give us true satisfaction, true rest, and him alone. And if you don't really know him, if you don't really know him in, in that personal way, where you've truly surrendered yourself to him. You're not going to be satisfied. And when you're not satisfied, you will come to a point where you go to the world and say, as Judas said, as we read in the text, what are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? You see, when you're near Jesus, if you're in the church, if you're around those people who, who do follow Christ, you're going to be confronted with your sin. At least in a healthy church, you should be. You're going to be confronted with your sin. And it's going to begin to feel uncomfortable. And it will lead you either into the loving arms of Christ to confess those sins and say, I want to give them to you. I can't hold on to them anymore. I can't hide from him anymore. I can't hide from you anymore. I surrender it to you. You're going to come to Christ so you can be set free from that sin and all the weight and guilt and shame that it brings with it. Or you will begin to resent the Jesus of the Bible. You're going to resent the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm not talking about, again, I, I use this term like Instagram Jesus, this idea of Jesus. Like, I love all of my favorite quotes of Jesus, but please don't quote me anything where he talks about hell or anything or sin or, you know, condemnation. I like this Jesus. I like the Instagram Jesus. The biblical Jesus will begin to make you uncomfortable, and you will begin to resent the idea of him and everything that he represents. You see, Judas didn't really care about the money, right? He didn't go and say, hey, if you give me, you know, three million, I'll maybe think about delivering Jesus over. 
He wasn't looking for a money. He just said, what will, you, what will you give me? I'll take anything. I'll take anything. What are you willing to give me if I turn him over? So what is his heart? What is he really wanting to say? He's saying, what do I need to do to get this Jesus out of my life? I can't handle it. I don't want to be near him anymore. He's making me uncomfortable with my sin. I got to get rid of him. That's where Judas came to. He didn't care about the money. You see, when Jesus looked at Judas, he looked right into his heart. And Judas knew that, right? He had seen Jesus reveal the sins of others. Certainly, he was aware that Jesus could see his own sin. It must have dawned on him eventually. He knew. Jesus knew. And he couldn't take it anymore. He had to either surrender, give up the things that he loved, stealing out of the money bag, maybe liking the power and authority he had as one of the 12. He had to surrender that away and choose Christ or get rid of Jesus out of his life. And he chose to get rid of Jesus out of his life. Jesus can see through you. He can see through you. You can't hide your sin from him. He sees through your facades, through your perfect Christian speech, carefully planned prayers, he knows what's really in your heart. He knows what you do when no one's watching. He knows where you're, where you're going every day, every minute, what you click on on the internet. He sees you. He's with you. You can't hide that sin from him. How silly it is to try. And we don't need to, to feel fear. We don't need to push Jesus away. We need to run to him. He can see through you, and he wants to set you free from the sin. He wants to set you free from regret and shame and guilt But you can't try to hide from him. You have to lay everything down before him, all your sins, all your faults, all your failures, and say, I cannot do it. I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need you, Jesus. And then you have peace. Sounds good. What's the problem? You have to love Jesus more than sin. That's the thing you have to give up. It says, so they counted out 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver, it was about the average price of a slave in the marketplace at that time. It was not a particularly large sum of money. I found a lot of different ideas of what it would be modern, but maybe a few thousand-ish, a few thousand euros possibly. It wasn't millions. It was an incredibly small amount considering that he was betraying Jesus Christ. It wasn't some great reward. So don't sell out Jesus when the world can never pay you enough. It can never give you enough. You may think, it may feel like it sometimes, it may seem like it sometimes, and the thing is, is a few people leave Jesus for something great. No one's going around saying, I'll pay a million dollars to anybody who denies and leaves the faith. There's nobody paying you a million dollars for that. We don't choose, we're not choosing millions, we're not choosing great fame or to, you know, have some glorious life. It's almost always for anything we want now. I want this now, and I want it more than Jesus. And it's really about getting away from him. I know what Jesus says. I've I've looked a little bit more at what the Bible says. Now I'm seeing the real Jesus of the Bible, and I know what he says about lust and about sexual immorality. I know what he says about pride and how dangerous it is. I know what he says about needing the adorations of others. But I don't want to give that up. I know what he says about trying to escape from everything through whether drugs or alcohol or just vegging on a new series over and over again. I know what he says about those things, but I don't, I don't want to give those up. I love them too much. And if I'm really getting to the point where I have to decide... What are you going to decide? Which do you love more? Judas made his choice. It's always the simple sins, and it's always about, it's always selfish sins that we end up choosing over the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who came to save and rescue you. Over dumb things, 30 pieces of silver, (laughs) the true brother the true sister of Jesus Christ, the true disciple. 
is not one who simply chooses to follow Jesus. We can choose to follow him or a Jesus, if you will, a version of Jesus that we like for all the wrong reasons. To fit in community, friendships, maybe a relationship. Maybe it's, maybe you, in ministry sometimes it's because of power and authority over other people. Or even simply just because I just want to be a good person. I want to do the right thing. I want to just, you know, live my life and do good things. And, that's, and so I'm just going to do that and follow Jesus. If, those are all wrong reasons. It's not only the one who chooses to follow Jesus, but the one whose life bears fruit of a new heart that truly belongs to the family of God as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So how could Judas walk with Jesus day after day after day for three years but not see him as his true Lord? Because the truth was not in him. The truth was not in him. The truth of who Jesus Christ is. That Jesus is who he says he is. Not just a teacher, not just some prophet, not just some guy that had some nice things to say. Judas had no fruit because he didn't see who Jesus really was, that he was the Messiah. He had no genuine repentance because he didn't know who Jesus really was. And Jesus warns that this will happen, right? Many are going to hear, many people are going to hear the truth, but not all of them are going to believe it. Not all of them are going to believe it. And even in the church, some have heard the truth. And they look like they believe. But in the end, there's no fruit. No changed heart, no changed life. And eventually, they will choose the world. They'll walk away because that's what they really want. That's what they really seek. And when it comes down to the decision point, they love sin more than the Savior. We see this kind of paralleled in the parable of the sower of the seed, which we won't read all the way through it. If you don't know, sower, the, basically, it's just a guy who throws the seeds, and it lands in different places, and then Jesus kind of goes through and g- explains what it means when it lands in different places. And of course, the seed is the truth. It's the word. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's understanding what that is. It's the truth, and it's going out. Many have heard it. It's being preached. It's being spoken. But it falls on different hearts. He gives the example of the path. And he says, on the path is when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, the devil, comes and snatches it away, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is, I think, very common, especially amongst intellectuals. Mm, Yeah, this this Jesus stuff is just rubbish. It doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. It doesn't go in deep. They can hear it. They can read the Bible, but they don't understand it. They don't get it. They don't get who Jesus really is. They don't get what it means to be Lord and Savior, what it means to surrender to Him. It's just all kind of cerebral, and they don't really, it doesn't go into their heart and don't get it. And so the devil comes and snatches it away. That's not always true of all people who are uh, intellectual, just to be clear. (laughs) But it's often the case when people just think about this intellectually and not really hearing what Jesus is really saying. The second is the rocky ground. He says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So they hear the word and they're like, they're like they start in the back and then the next week they're in the front row. They're, they got their hands lifted. They're excited. They're coming to church. They're serving. He says, yet it has no root. They have no root in, them, in, in themselves. But they, they do endure for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, Immediately, he falls away. It's not deep. They're not putting their roots in. They don't really know Jesus. It's just the idea. It's maybe the the atmosphere of a church. It's really good music. They hear the truth, and they like the, again, they like the Instagram Jesus. They like the good things, but as soon as things get hard, they either, they want to go somewhere else, and that will not sustain you. That will not hold you up. And you will face troubles. Life gets hard. Most of you are pretty young. Life gets hard. If you haven't had hard times yet, you might have some hard times coming. And when it does, you need something that's stronger. It's something firm, something that's got foundation that you can plant your feet on, stand on, hold on tightly to. And that is the truth of who Jesus is. Not the idea of Jesus, not this bumper sticker Jesus, but real Jesus Christ of the Bible. 
And if you don't have that root in who he is, it's not going to be enough to hold you to him when things get hard. Then we have among the thorns. I think this is probably what we see most with or the best example for Judas. It says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So this is, uh, yeah, I, I, I see, I, I, I hear the truth. I'm, I want to come to church. I want to I kind of know more. I want to grow it. But we kind of always keep ourselves entwined and inter, inter kind of tangled up in the world. I don't want to let go of these sins I have in my life. I don't want to completely root them out of my life. I want to keep them near me, but I'm still going to, I'm still going to come to church. I'm still going to believe, but I want these things still in, in, as a part of who I am. Jesus loves me. He'll understand. He doesn't care. But the truth is, is that eventually you have to come to a point. What do you love more? What do you love more? The sin? Do you love the world? And do you love the things that the world has to give you? Or do you love Jesus? Because eventually you're going to come to a point where you either, I want these sins out of my life because I want to have more room for Christ in my heart. I want to have more room for Jesus in my life. And I need to get rid of these things that are, that are taking up too much space. I want more room for him. Or you're going to say, oh, this Jesus is making me furious, making me uncomfortable about these things I love to do. And you're going to go to the world and say, what will you give me? What will you give me to get rid of this Jesus out of my life? And you'll choose the world. But finally, Matthew 13, 23, we see the good seed in the good soil. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. This is the true believer. This is the one who loves Christ, who wants him to be in not just a part of my life, but in every part of my life, my all in all to fill up every space of who I am. I want to follow him, but I want to obey him. I want to serve him. I want to know him. And not for any other reason than simply because I love him, because I know he first loved me. That's understanding the gospel. To say, I love Jesus because he first loved me. And I want to love him with everything I have. With everything I am. Not because of appearances. Not so I look a certain way. Not to gain anything personally. And not only when times are good. I want to love him always. Because Jesus himself is the goal. Jesus himself is the goal. If everything is taken from me, Jesus is what I want. Jesus is what I want. So how do we know if we have the truth and we understand the truth? How do we know if we're a Judas or not? I think it's a lot to do with the heart and an understanding of sin, but it's not about living perfectly. It's not about living perfectly. It's about understanding sin and repentance, and there's no better example than Peter and Judas, which I'll just, really quick, if you didn't have that in your mind yet, that, uh, you know, both of them committed heinous acts against the Lord. Both of them rejected him, betrayed him in a way. Peter denied him, had denied ever having known him three times. Judas, of course, betrayed him for mere 30 pieces of silver. Both, though, showed regret for what they had done. Judas, before taking his own life, said that he changed his mind and he regretted that he had done this. He regretted that he had done it. He even gave the money back to the priests. Peter, upon hearing the rooster crow the third time, after knowing that Jesus had predicted that he would deny him three times before the rooster crows, as soon as he heard the rooster crow, Peter wept bitterly in regret for what he had done. But only Peter was forgiven and restored because he only truly repented. You say, what's the difference? What's the difference? 2 Corinthians 7.10 explains it well. I'm going to read the ESV. They probably have the NIV behind me, but I like the way the ESV says this better, so bear with me. It says, for godly sorrow or grief, for godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
A godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow or grief produces death. What are we talking about with, worldly, with godly sorrow or grief? It's talking about the weight of sin. A weight of sin that leads or doesn't just lead to, produces repentance. And that leads to salvation. That's an understanding of the truth. Whereas, and without regret, that's the beautiful part. When we come to Christ, we don't just, He doesn't just like take our burden. He takes it away and we, we walk away free. We don't have to carry any more regret with us. Whereas worldly grief just produces death. Judas may have shown regret for what he had done before his end, but he did not show repentance. I'm sure he did regret what he did, and I think he regretted it because he knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew Jesus was an innocent man, and he betrayed him to his death. But I do not believe he ever saw Jesus as his Lord. He never saw Jesus as for who he said he was. He never saw Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, as the promised one. He never saw him that way. Judas had a worldly regret, a worldly sorrow. He just felt guilty about what he had done, about his actions against Jesus, and he saw, but he never saw Jesus as his Lord. He never repented for sinning against Jesus. His heart didn't change. And this worldly regret produced shame, and it was such a heavy shame because there was no greater sin ever committed than betraying Jesus Christ And that shame overwhelmed him to the point where he took his own life. We see a direct explanation or a direct action from the explanation we see in 2 Corinthians. That worldly grief, worldly sorrow, it just just produces death. It leads to death. It doesn't bring us hope. It doesn't bring us salvation. It doesn't make us to a point where we repent and come to Christ. And he contrasts Peter, who did have genuine repentance, not just worldly regret. He didn't just regret what he did. He, he knew that Jesus was the only one who could remove his regret, his shame, his sin, and also the only one that he had sinned against. It wasn't just, he didn't just feel bad and he wanted that bad feeling to go away. He knew he had sinned against Jesus. And we see a great image of what repentance should look like in our own lives. And what I kind of want to leave you guys with as we slowly close when he first saw Jesus after he had denied him, he was out fishing. And they see a man on the shore. They don't know it's Jesus. He's calling out to him, asking him, hey, how's the fishing going? Kind of. <laughs> Paraphrase. And John leans over to Peter and goes, it's the Lord. <laughs> it's Jesus. Peter does not even give one second thought He wraps his cloak around him, dives in the water, and swims to shore. Leaves all, they got loads of fish to to pull in, loads of work to done, but he wants to go to Christ. I sinned against him. I want to get near him. I want to get to him. This is what genuine repentance looks like. Heading to the one who can save you from the sin. Worldly regret leads to a dark place where we want to hide from God. We want to cover ourselves. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to pray about it. We want to hide from him, just as we saw from the beginning. This is ingrained into us from Adam and Eve. What did they do when they sinned, when they ate the fruit? They went and tried to hide. They made fig leaf clothes, like that was going to like, hide them. They felt naked. They felt ashamed. This is ingrained in us. It's normal to feel those things, but you have to understand when you get the truth, when you understand the truth, when you hear the word and understand it, you know that hiding doesn't work. There is one who will redeem us from that sin. So we don't have to have regret. We don't have to have shame. We don't have to cover ourselves. We don't have to hide from God. We can open ourselves and be vulnerable before him. Godly repentance leads us to run to the only one who can remove our sins. And free us from all the guilt and shame and regret. Godly repentance birthed from godly sorrow, which is a seeing of our sin, a godly sorrow of our own sin, leads us to run into the arms of Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. So I want to encourage you or leave you with today to take time this week to check your own heart. 
Check your own heart and see how do you view sin. Whether it's temptations that are very worldly, whether wealth or adoration or lust or escape, we're kind of trying to always run away from things and run away from life through whatever means that might be. Or it's self-righteousness and pride and look how good of a Christian I am. All sin should be taken seriously. And we should train our hearts to run straight to Jesus every time so that we, are, we grow more and more sensitive to it. I've been, all the time, every time I feel like there's a sin in my life that I've, I've just seen victory in, I'm like, I, I, I almost immediately want to fall into pride. Like, well, yeah, look at me, man, I'm conquering this sin, amen. And then immediately I'm falling into pride, and then like God just kind of just opens the window a little bit more of my heart and says, mm, what about this and this and this and this? And I, I just pray all the time. I want to be sensitive to those things so that I'm not, I'm not repenting after I've gone way too far, but even just as it begins to be a thought in my head or a, a thing in my heart that I'm immediately going to Christ, immediately going to Him. I want to take sin seriously. I want to remove it from my life, remove the weeds so I have more room for Him. And a repentant heart says, I cannot save myself. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I hide, I cannot save myself. So I will go to Jesus over and over and over and over again as I strive with all my heart to be more and more like him in every area of my life. Let's pray. I invite the band to come up as we close. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you so much that we have your word, we have your truth right here and at our fingertips, right before us, that we can hear it, that we can absorb it. I pray, Father, that all of us here today would not just be hearers of the truth, but that it would go in deep, that every heart here would be good soil, every heart here would be soft soil where the seed, the truth of your word, of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save and free us would go deep into our hearts. And as it grows, there would be no room for anything else, no room for sin, no room for all of our failures, our regrets, our shames, that we would know you and you only above all else. And we would want you and you only above all else in our lives. You would be the goal. You would be our everything. We pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.